welcome to another episode of the Bottom Up Revolution podcast from Strong Towns. I'm your host, Rachel. A few months ago, I saw an article about a fascinating and unique program where lower income kids in Birmingham, Alabama were learning home renovation and building skills as part of their high school education. This didn't seem to be just about learning construction skills, though. It was also about lifting up and revitalizing the neighborhood where they lived. The school program is called Build Up, and this podcast episode features an interview with Janiel Morris, who's the chief academic officer there. In our conversation, Ms. Morris talks about how Build Up came to be. It is a pretty new model how these missions of education and revitalization are entwined, and how the program has already made a positive impact on so many kids and families. She also discusses her own background addressing educational needs and rebuilding school programs in the South after Hurricane Katrina, and how that experience and all the resilience that she saw and she gained as part of it has prepared her for what she does now. We also get into a brief discussion of the different school types, charter, private, and public, and the various possibilities and drawbacks of these schools when trying to approach education with a new and creative model like build-ups. And of course, we talk a lot about how step-by-step, home-by-home rebuilding can help a neighborhood grow more economically strong and stay that way for many years to come. If you're like me, you're going to immediately enjoy this conversation because it's just fascinating to hear about a creative approach to education that sees children as integrally part of their communities rather than just like little machines to be programmed and sent off to college or careers. And I think you're also going to immediately appreciate Janiel's passion and dedication to everyone that she works with and serves. So let's get into the interview. Janiel Morris, thank you for joining me for this episode of the Bottom Up Revolution podcast. It's so good to have you here. Thank you for having me. So can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your community where you live? Uh, Yes, I am originally from Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I moved to New Orleans uh, shortly after Hurricane Katrina to kind of help rebuild the school system and ended up staying there for about 10 years. Um, I moved back to Atlanta um, just to go back into the classroom for a little while. And I had had a partnership with uh, Mark Martin, who's our current CEO. We've actually known each other for almost 20 years. Uh, We started teaching together in Atlanta public schools um, as first grade teachers. And we've kept our relationship since then um, in terms of just communication. And he reached out and said he you know, was starting on this journey in Birmingham and he wanted someone to come in and help create an academic program that actually had to do with workforce learning and instruction. And so at that point, that was before the George Floyd shooting happened, but we were in a tumultuous time as a country and I had already decided that I, I was adamant about making sure that things are not like this coming out or coming into the new presidency. So I packed everything up and moved to Birmingham. Um, I currently live in Titusville, which is closer to the UAB campus. And I'm currently living in one of the houses that um, our students help renovate. And we do have one campus in Inslee, which is where we're currently housed, but we're opening a second campus in Titusville. 
Tell us about how this organization build up got started. It sounds like you were part of it from the beginning. I would say we're kind of in a restart mode. So we build up started two years ago. Um, it's the brainchild of Mark Martin, who is a native Alabaman. Alabamian. I'm actually not sure <laughs> if I said that correctly. Um, but Mark has gone to University of Alabama. Um, he went to Georgia for his master's degree, went to Harvard for his doctorate. And we have been on this journey in terms of inner city education for a while now, realizing that we've been through the public school system, we've been through the charter school system, and we realize that a lot of these systems that we have in America, especially in the district level, are ans- so very antiquated that the things that we're trying to accomplish we continue to hit a wall every time because of these systems. And so Mark came up with the idea of let's have a, let's start a private school that serves low income communities. And all of our students are able to attend the school through scholarships and fundraising. And the goal was to go into blighted communities, struggling communities and tear down the blight bring in homes that have been donated, whether it's from suburbs or other places where people were going to tear down smaller houses and build larger ones, move them to the blighted communities and help renovate and then move our families into better homes because a lot of our families and members of those communities um, are in houses that are, are basically being run by slumlords and haven't been renovated for years. So this is a really unique model. Like I don't think I've ever encountered anything quite like this combining like school and building and learning to renovate homes. I'm just fascinated. Like how do you approach learning in this type of environment? Well, we are definitely uh, challenged with some of the again, going back to some of the things that have been put in place in schools. You know, a lot of our standards that we still have to follow, a lot of the things that are still put on standardized tests, they are a lot of the systems that were implemented in the 50s and the 60s. And so we decided that we just were going to do education completely different and that we wanted to present something to our parents to be able to say that we see that the way that we traditionally school have done school is not working for this population of students. And so we're going to present something significantly different. And what that looks like is they have their core classes throughout the day, um, but our students kind of move in pods. So they're moving with their grade level, but within that grade level, every student is on a very different um, academic level, whether it's reading or math. So there's a significant amount of differentiation that occurs for our kids, and that comes through individualized learning plans. So you usually hear that... You usually hear the term individualized learning plan when you're thinking about a student in special education and they have an IEP and you meet once a year and revise that. And what we decided was that because our students, one, are coming so coming to us so far behind academically because of, again, just the situation with public education in Alabama, but also the social emotional issues that we need. We basically have created an individualized learning plan for each of our students. And so that plan lays out what's happening in their home life, what support systems they need, um, what help the parents need, um, in addition to all the academic um, supports that need to be in place for the school. So we've kind of looked at, let's look at the whole child. Let's look at the conditions of the community. Let's look at the support systems that are there or not there um, in order to get that child out of high school into community college and graduate from community college. 
It sounds like there are, you know, plenty of like more standard school aspects, you know, taking math, taking reading and these things. But then how does the like workforce development piece fit into like an average school day? What does that look like for kids in this program? So when they when they're going into they are taking your average reading and math classes. Um, What the difference I would say is that we combine for an example, we have a link learning teacher, which is one of our um, construction teachers. You could it could be comparable to what you would consider like a woodshop class um, when we used to have vocational ed schools. So they go to woodshop and we follow the HBI curriculum, which is Home Builders Institute. And so their first couple of units, um, let's just say one is construction math. And so they work in collaboration with the math teachers to kind of bridge some of the foundational gaps that our students have, but also know that it, once they went onto the construction site where you actually have to start to measure the two by fours to the nearest half an inch and making sure that all of your measurements are accurate, there's a collaboration between the math teacher and the link learning teachers to make sure that our kids are acquiring those skills. So everything is more cross-curricular. And we have a lot of collaboration with our teachers to make sure that it's not just we're learning math in an isolated moment in time. Another example would be, so we actually built a pergola for the church that we're, um, we're housed in. And so we, they went through an entire math problem. How many materials are we going to need? What are the, you know, what are the specs that we need for these materials? Went to Home Depot, got everything. They had actually done the blueprint for the um, pergola. And so it was a, it could have been something we could have just solved on a word problem, pencil paper, but we took it to a whole nother level. And now we have this wonderful pergola that's outside that now the church members can sit under on the weekends. Yeah, so interdisciplinary. Uh, I love it. Why is the focus housing? you know, you're, we're recognizing that there are these needs for revitalizing the homes in Birmingham and your area, but also there's like these learning needs. Why did housing and um, home revitalization end up being the focus of this like workforce development program? Well, I think that we identified that in minority communities, a lot of our families are renters. And we know that there is a different mentality from renting and owning and what comes with taking pride in something that you've worked hard for, um, have put your money into and now can say this belongs to me and my family and I can pass it down from generation to generation. What we've identified is that in order for you to actually attain a home or even in some cases a consistent job, That obstacle is tremendous for our students because of not only just the normal factors of lack of education, but just the things that come with, you know, minorities having interest, high interest loans, not being able to get access to home mortgages. So we have partnered with banks. We've partnered with Alabama Housing Authority. We've partnered with Birmingham Land Bank to make sure that we identified Inslee because this was once a booming part of Birmingham. And when the steel industry kind of went south, all of this used to be actually a white neighborhood. And again, with white flight, everyone moved out of this neighborhood. And it's kind of like one of the places in Birmingham that the city forgot about. And there are people living here. But again, it's a food desert. There's only one grocery store. 
Um, the majority of the stores are Dollar Trees or, you know, a couple of gas stations, but we don't have any, we don't have fresh fruits and vegetables. We just don't have access to those things. And we know that housing, having a community of people working together to bring businesses into the neighborhood, to create businesses, that's how you gentrify a community. And so we actually, you know, I asked Mark, I said, I've, I've never actually heard of, um, minorities gentrifying their community. And I said, is it even called gentrification? If black, you know, if you change your own community, cause we're just not used to seeing that happen. And so this has kind of been, instead of us waiting for the neighborhood to be taken over, we just decided we're going to try and build up the neighborhood ourselves and get the community involved, get our kids involved to say, let's change what we're looking at. Let's change the blight of the houses that we're seeing. Um, so that we can get the businesses here, we can bring more jobs to the community and employ more of our parents and our families. Yeah, such a wonderful vision. Who ends up getting to um, purchase or or live in these homes once they're fixed up? I know you mentioned that that you're living in one. How does that process work? Well, my process was a little bit different, <laughs> but the process is so. After our students, they have three different options in terms of um, the pathway that they can take at BuildUp. So they do have to complete their core classes just to graduate at, um, from high school in Alabama. But then you have the option of going into a registered apprenticeship. So you would decide on your trade and study under um, one of the home builders associations that are active in the state. And they would train you in that in that skilled area. Um, you can also attend a four-year degree. Uh, we are encouraging our students to actually go to community college first because we don't actually believe in incurring a significant amount of debt just to go to a four-year college. If you can break that debt up and get your first two years for free, then go to, then go to the four-year. We're, we're actually encouraging them to do that. Um, and then the other option is that you can create your own business so we do have a financial math course that our students take, which includes an entrepreneurship class. And that's teaching them, again, we know that they're actually developing these skills in these trade areas. And we do want them to not only learn from others, but then also decide that now you can do this yourself. You can create your own business and then come back and teach others the same way that you were taught. Once they've attained those, either of those three things and we can verify it, they have option to choose one of the houses that they've renovated. And then we turn over the deed to that house. Wow. That's so cool. I love hearing about all these different options too. Like I imagine different types of students have different needs and, and different goals for their path. They do. And they've chose, we actually have right now one, two, there's two families living in houses right now. And so one of the students, he recently, he graduated actually in December he and his family are in one of the houses that they they worked on last year during the pandemic. He just recently moved in. He's attending. He'll be attending UAB in the fall. Um, but he chose that house because he worked on that house as a student. And he said, this is the house that I want for my family. So they are currently in that house. Once he completes his degree at UAB, then that will be his family's house. Maybe I should have started by asking this, you know, what sort of um, kids end up going to this school? Is there like a, a competitive application process? It sounds like um, there's probably quite a bit of scholarships that are provided. How do people end up going here? Yeah. 
we do have an enrollment process that does involve um, an application and a family interview. The majority of our students actually, actually all of our students are on scholarships. So our tuition is about, um, if you include how much fundraising we do, the tuition of build up is about $25,000. We get a lot of that money from state tax scholarships and um, we have a scholarship organization that raises money, scholarships for kids, and it raises money for all students across Alabama to that may want to leave a failing school and go to a private school. All of our students qualify for financial aid. All of our students qualify for their scholarships. Um, and I think there's always a myth that everybody at a private school, you know, the family comes for money. None of our students come for money. Our students are public school students that most of the high schools in Alabama, excuse me, in Birmingham City are failing high schools. And the parents identified that I want something different for my child. And so they've decided, they reached out to us and said, you know, I want to have a different experience. So we go through an interview process, not to wean out children, but to make sure that parents are aware of the requirements of the support that it's going to take to make these kind of changes in their child's life. Because it is, it does take a significant amount of um, not just change in terms of your behaviors, but changing your mindset when you're a 15 year old. Um, and you've been inundated with negative, whether it's negative perceptions of yourself or of your of your race, your ethnicity, or just you hate school at this point because of how horrible school has been for you. So ninth grade is a really big year for us in terms of seeing how many students are really committed to changing their life versus they're just at the school because their parents told them to. So that inter- that interview process is actually a little bit rigorous. Um, we try not to make it too stressful for the kids, but we want to make sure that they understand like this is going to take some work because, you know, you've in some cases, you've basically had 15 years of failing education that now we have to undo potentially in four. And so if they're not on board, it's it would be much more of an uphill battle than, you know, we can tackle with the, you know, the staff that we have. But if there are parents that are willing to work with us, then, you know, we accept them. So we definitely have kids whose grades, you know, they they have S. We have kids with IEPs. We have students from all over. The majority of our 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 population is male, so we are our student population is about ninety percent male. That's also, of course, because our focus is on the construction industry. But we also recognize that in terms of the African American male population in the United States, ages sixteen to about twenty five, that's kind of those are like danger zone ages for Black males. Um, whether we're losing children to the streets, we're losing them to violence, we're losing them to the police violence. But those are, that's the age range where you're most likely to lose your child. And um, I just, I've gone through this with my son, who's currently 22 and just recently graduated. It is, it is extremely stressful for parents. And a lot of our parents are single mothers who do need more of a support system. And so our school is there for that. I wanted to ask about the funding a little bit, if you can speak to that. Like, I think you mentioned that some of the homes are donated and, and, and maybe the land is coming through a land trust at certain points. So like without getting into like all the, I'm sure there's a lot of details, but like how broadly do you get access to these homes um, and, and just per- get the funding beyond some of the state funding? Well, so the first would 
there are blighted properties all throughout Birmingham and the land bank does provide access if you want to purchase the properties as a school system or as a private school, they gave us access to that. The house moving was something we realized that it was taking much more time to renovate an abandoned property or a condemned property. Um, and it, the kids did not yet have that skill set to be able to renovate it at the, I guess, at the pace that we needed. And so once the word kind of got out about the program, we started getting phone calls from families in the suburbs of Birmingham um, surrounding areas saying, you know, we just moved here where we were going to tear this house down. But we heard that now you move houses. So we have a company called Move Up. And they go, they take the house from wherever side of town it is, and they bring it to Inslee or they bring it to Titusville. It is a tax write-off for the family that donates the house. And then what we end up doing is putting it, put that donated house on the blighted property that we purchased and do the necessary renovations, which are a lot, they're a lot um, less than what we would have to do if we took over a condemned property. And then again, the families move in. So it actually worked out in our benefit that we've had so many people willing to donate homes. I did not expect, you know, the, it's it's overwhelming, um, but it's actually amazing that there have been so many members of the community saying that we recognize that, you know, there are some very large disparities between the African-American community and the Caucasian community in Birmingham. And they wanted to help you know, fix some of those problems. So we actually have houses that are kind of sitting on stilts right now that we're trying to move because we've, we've gotten so many houses donated to us. I don't think we ever anticipated this much outreach and support from the community, but it, it's been an amazing year. And I imagine that like the project of moving a house is not a small endeavor. So I can see it is that not. Well, it would we take actually, time to figure all those logistics out. It takes a lot of planning and we do have support from the Jefferson County Sheriff's Department. Um, it always happens at the wee hours of the night. So you would actually, we don't do it during the day. It's usually something that happens between like 12 and five in the morning. There's a whole company that does it. They do it for, you know, they've been doing it. This is their career. So we kind of turned it over to them and it, it's just been a great process. Yeah, that's fascinating. I know that Build Up is, is incorporated as a private school and it sounds like you have experience also working in public and charter. I know that like conversations about charter schools and these different types of schools are very controversial. People have a lot of different opinions, but like, why did you like choose to be part of this and why incorporate this as a private school? Is it really just like the flexibility that it provides um, being set up this way? It's one, it's 1000% the flexibility. If you look at public school, traditional public school, and then again, you know, we, we did New Orleans became a charter city post hurricane Katrina. And there were a lot of benefits that came out of that. Um, But we also lost a lot of kids in that process. Um, while the schools were trying to figure out, you know, what to do. And then also in the interest of, again, seeing public and charter schools, I've also seen schools that do not cater to the community. The ca- The community is actually not welcome in those schools. And so what, what Mark and I have learned is that it really has nothing to do with the brick and mortar. It has to do with the people that are in the building. 
um, what they believe and what they're willing to do to make that situation work. And what we found is that when we were dealing with the districts, we had to just jump through so many hoops just to get things done for our kids. Whereas now that we're in private school, if our kids need something, our kids get it. And there's, there are no hoops. Yeah. That makes sense. Do you have any favorite like success stories from the last couple of years or just like results that you're, you're proud of that the school has accomplished and, and the kids have accomplished so far during your time there? I would say probably this year, and I, I mean, and I'm sure every educator in America can speak to this. This year has been probably the most trying year that any of us have experienced as educators, not just because of COVID, but also just the mental, the mental stress that this year kind of caused with the election and just everything that was going on. And I think we actually, we've been in school this entire time. We wore masks. We've, you know, we've taken temperatures. We had one child that had COVID, but it did not spread to the rest of the school. Um, so we have been super fortunate um, as a community to, to not have had any real issues as a, as a result of what was happening this year in, in the world. And I, I'm super proud of my kids just because we kind of came together as a community and said, you know, some of our children are being raised by their grandparents. And it was just a very honest conversation. We meet every Monday in the sanctuary because, again, we're housed in a church. And I said, you know, I want you you know, look around. Some of you are being raised by your grandparents. If you do not wear your mask, if you're out being irresponsible, then potentially you are risking that some of your classmates will not have anyone to live with. And I want you to think about the severity of what that means just because you don't want to wear your mask. And they took that so very seriously. And I just, I, I'm so very proud of the way that they have loved each other and supported each other and their families, recognizing that, you know, my little one moment of selfishness could actually be detrimental to my classmates' whole entire life. And I would say that's probably my proudest moment in all sincerity, because I just didn't, I, I've heard so many horror stories about COVID at, at schools that are back in session, and we, we didn't have any of that. Yeah, wow. That's that's great to hear. And we also managed to finish three houses this year. Um, well, during the pandemic, we finished three houses. We had a sort of a showcase of the houses. It got some media publicity, but it was just good to be able to say, like, we're going through all these things, but we're still pushing forward. You guys are still advancing and we're still achieving our goals. So to close out, what advice do you have for others who might be interested in um trying to work creatively with education for kids, trying to work outside the, the typical systems, um, perhaps people who are interested in workforce development. Um, what advice would you share for people like that? Don't let the obstacles deter you because there are a significant amount of obstacles in education. If you think about your end goal and the impact that it could have on students and the potential that it could have, not just to change students, but also to change generational poverty um, and to kind of bridge some of these gaps that have been created as a result of institutional racism. I say, I say go for it and don't let, don't let the institutions that exist 
keep you down or get you frustrated. It's just you, you got to find a way to maneuver through it because, again, it takes a lot of maneuvering. And I don't want to paint a picture that it doesn't because we've had to do some maneuvering ourselves. But if you stay focused on that goal, you can get there. Well, thank you so much, Janelle Morris, for sharing your your insights and your story um, about BuildUp and, and your work there. It's been fascinating to hear about, um, and I'm excited for uh, everyone to get to hear this conversation on, on this podcast. So thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. We appreciate it so much. So cool to hear about BuildUp, right? I hope we see more schools like this one popping up around the country. I will share links to their website and other relevant articles in the show notes too. And if you want more access to resources, tools, and ideas to help you get started doing amazing things like Genial's doing, I encourage you to check out the Strong Towns Action Lab by visiting actionlab.strongtowns.org. We've got lots of resources. You can search by key topics like incremental development or missing middle housing. You can find how-to guides, and you can connect with fellow Strong Towns advocates. Lots of great stuff. Again, that's actionlab.strongtowns.org. As always, feel free to send a voicemail or email letting me know what you're up to, what you're doing in your community. That's Rachel, R-A-C-H-E-L, at strongtowns.org. Finally, thank you to our Strong Towns members who financially support this movement. We've been doing this work and sharing this message for 10 years, and that is all possible because of you guys. If you're listening and you want to see this message of economic resilience and bottom-up progress spread further across America, become a member at strongtowns.org membership. All right, y'all, as you're listening to this episode, if you're listening right after it came out, um, I am literally driving across the country, um, moving from my home in Boston, Massachusetts to a new home in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, uh, which is quite exciting. Um, my first time being a homeowner. So wish me luck on that. And I will be back here next week reporting from my new home podcast setup. So thanks for listening, y'all. Have a great rest of your week.